Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you now to ask for your presence to be not only noticed, but felt in our hearts and minds. We praise you for your spirit who is moving among us. We praise you for your church that is earthbound and yet triumphant. We praise you, Lord, for your calling to our lives, for your willingness to embrace us, for your willingness to come to us. Let these words speak to our hearts this morning as we've gathered here for worship in order that our lives might be a greater reflection of your presence within. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are getting lessons from Luke. These are part of the lectionary series that we've been reading from lately. And someone asked me to explain what the lectionary texts are that we read from. The church in its wisdom years ago organized the scriptures into a pattern. Into a pattern that would form a Christian year. Much like our calendar year that goes from January to December, the lectionary year goes from the advent and the expectation of Christ, which comes four Sundays before Christmas Day, all the way through celebration of Christ the King as our Lord and Savior. They picked out verses, one from the epistles, one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospels. They put them together. Sometimes there's a psalm and proverb also put in there with them. The intent of the writers was to gather scriptures around similar topics. And we probably, as a preacher, would say that they are successful to some degree in in that each and every week. Sometimes it seems a little hard to make all four texts go together. And so one of these years, uh, in this lectionary text, they went forward with this idea of coming from the Gospel of Luke. And so we decided to do that. Actually, I felt led to do that a while back, and so we have lessons from Luke. Now, when you follow the lectionary text, it's intended to take you on a journey through Scripture that lasts three years. They're called year A, B, and C. We're now in year C, toward the end of year C, and each year follows a similar pattern in the big celebrations of the Christian year. And if you read and study those verses contained in the Scriptures, you will cover most of the, of the Bible in that time, in those three years. You will preach from topics that you would never choose, kind of like today, fair warning. Or you, would, you'll choose, uh, you won't be free to just choose the same text over and over about the same text. When you pick the Gospel of Luke, or when they chose it, they knew that the Gospel of Luke would be challenging for people in our culture, even as it was in the days when Jesus was ministering among them. I think it's always good for us to remember that each gospel is unique in its own way, even though they tell about the same person. Sometimes they tell about the same experiences, but from different perspectives. But the reality is it's not any one text or any one passage of Scripture from any one of the four gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus, but rather it's about the combination of all the texts coming together to affirm that which is primary and other things which are important as well. And so when we get ready to read the text this morning and to delve into it, we know that this comes within a setting. It comes within a setting where Jesus has been invited to one of the banquets, typical in his day. 
It was not uncommon when they had these kinds of banquets or gatherings for them to invite a teacher to come in and instruct the people who were gathered there. One of the things that was common about those gatherings when they came to these feasts or festivals was to um, have assigned seating more or less, with the best seats being given to the more prominent ones. And that's why Jesus, when he walks into this Pharisee's house, knowing the Pharisee's heart and the hearts of those who were gathering, he noticed that, that some people were coming right in and going right to the front, the places of honor. The greatest honor was to sit there. And if you remember, James and John later on would be uh, found talking about who got to sit on Jesus' right hand or his left. A great conversation for these two, two disciples to uh, be having, right? Such humility the sons of thunder had. But the, Jesus overheard them and corrected them at that point too. Well, this text is something along that line where they're gathering for food. As in many places in Luke, they're gathering for food and a table of fellowship where Jesus begins to teach them. And so it was with this one. I think, however, this text is particularly difficult for not only for them to hear, but for us to hear today. And it's particularly difficult for us to hear because it strikes at our notion of what it means to be a Christian, what Christian character looks like, what are our aims and our goals in life, what culture prompts us and encourages us to participate in, and what perhaps we, things we've been taught that are actually counterculture to what Jesus wants us to live like. And that's what makes this kind of text very, very difficult. It's about Christian character. The total of the qualities making up an individual, if you will. Essential features, distinctive marks of what it means to have a Christian character. Virtues, character virtues that are describe moral excellence are, and good qualities that are virtues that the followers of Jesus want to emulate. Well, when he came and uh, found himself in this group, he knew that he needed to address what was going on in that culture. And I would say it's appropriate for us today to try and embrace that. If you're not a little uncomfortable as you hear these words when Cindy was reading them, or as we talk about them this morning, you'll be the unusual one. And if you are a little comfortable, then you're in good company because most of the people around you are a little uncomfortable too, as they were when Jesus spoke them the first time. But I think this uncomfortableness prompts us to come back to the text and ask it questions about exactly what Jesus was trying to say and exactly what that same principle, how it can be applied to our culture and to our lives today. Answer the question, what does Jesus expect of us? Essential features of genuine people living as followers of Christ. This is something that we need to hold on to, that we need to cling to, that we need to try to discern. And we need to do it in light of the music we've been singing. And that's really important. And then what I'm referring to most specifically, I think it was in the second song, where it was talking so much about forgiveness. Jesus knew the Pharisees needed forgiveness, and he knows we need forgiveness too. He knows that our patterns of life and living are often clouded over by the culture in which we've been raised, by our own human tendencies to want and to desire things that are not always helpful to us as Christian brothers and sisters in our world. And so he brings up these topics to this group of people who are there. Now, if I ask you what virtues 
character traits are the most prominent and obvious in the life of Jesus, what would you say? You speak them out now, one at a time. Just say the word. Humility. Somebody was listening to the text, weren't they? What else? Love, absolutely. What else? Truth. Compassion. What else? I couldn't hear this one over here. Genuine. Yes, and what over here? Okay, you hear them coming, right? Like popcorn popping around you. And in your head, they're popping around you. Now, this text doesn't address all of those, but it does address two of them specifically in the stories he says here. These two virtues that in this text are obvious are humility and generous. Generosity. Two of the characteristics of Jesus' life that we sometimes struggle with in our own. So as we go through these thoughts, let us struggle with them. Because that's the whole point of the text. Humility in this passage had to do with the social status that was obvious by the seating at the banquets. And now... The table principles, where you sit, who you were, were very meaningful to them because these people had a struggle. They had a great struggle with shame and honor. Their culture, those were huge things. So when Jesus talks about going and taking a seat of high honor and you having to get up and leaving it, it would be the greatest fear you would think of those people there because you would be shamed because someone else came after you and the giver of the feast asked, had to ask you to move down for someone who was more important than you. That kind of shame they would be terrified of. Not only shame, though, is talked about in this passage, also honor. He also talked about how if you took the seat at the back of the room, so to speak, we could say the back of the bus in our culture, and you were invited to come and sit on the front, how you would be honored because of your humility. Both characteristics very clear in that Mediterranean culture. Both of those characteristics, important even in today's world as well, but not nearly as ingrained perhaps in our lives as we need them to be as they were in their cultures. This passage, as he describes it, the story unfolds, you can almost hear the people squirming in their chairs, can't you? Except they were probably not, they were lying down against the table, which was the method of eating in those days. The humility in this passage is made obvious by what he's saying, which is a word of wisdom, a word of warning, and a word of blessing. The wisdom is, don't go to the front seat. Don't set yourself up. I mean, who knows who's going to come in? Who knows who's invited? You may think you're very important, and then guess what? Someone much more important comes in, and then you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong seat, right? Now, how many of you would walk into the banquet hall in our, in our society, a big banquet, let's say, 1,000 people in attendance? Would you go to the head table and just sit down when you got there? Probably not, right? Probably not. Because you would assume that head table, like there is such a thing, would be the table for someone who is more worthy than you to sit there. But what if you did? What if you took that seat that had to be asked to get up and leave? Think how embarrassing that would be even in our culture. And that's what he's warning them about here. It's this very practical wisdom. And he goes on to say it with a warning because you're going you're to feel terrible if you're told to get asked to get up and leave. You're going to have great shame. And he goes on with a word of blessing. Instead of seeking your own place of honor, 
allow someone else to lift you up when you've taken the place of humility. That, my friends, is what Jesus came to teach us. He came to teach us a way of living that is countercultural in his day and is certainly countercultural in our day. I'm just going to go ahead and give a short example. Look at the humility we experience as we listen to the two candidates for president of the United States. <laughs> They're telling the poor what they, that they understand them. Oh, give me a break, please. Really? I mean, really? They're trying to understand. I want to believe that. But it's really hard to understand the really poor after generations and generations of poverty unless you are in their midst regularly and really listening and identifying with their lives. It's very hard. It's very, very difficult to do that. And in this passage, we think about what is used often. This is a technique that the Gospel of Luke uses. It's called the great reversal. Because in verse 11, Jesus just blurts it out there for all of us to read and squirm with. And what does he say? Everyone who exalts himself or herself will be humbled. And he or her who humbles himself or herself will be exalted. Now, the idea of humbling ourselves so that God can exalt us, so that we'll be exalted in God's eyes, is not the first thing that culture teaches us, is it? Not in our country. We're told to reach for the gold, to press onward. We're told... We're worthy of that, which is good. You know, this is a very good lesson in self-esteem in this book because it's meant to, as preachers are fond of saying, we have a dual task. Actually, we have the same task in both directions. We're supposed to preach in such a way that those who are disturbed will be comforted. And at the same time, preach in such a way that those who are comfortable will be disturbed, right? Well, that's what this, this sermon is about. That's what this text is about. I mean, it's just there right in front of you. Wherever you are, you have feelings attached to these words. And these feelings are important because we know and we believe as an educated people, self-esteem is important. This, this message is not about lowering your self-esteem. It's not about that at all. It's about making the same decision that Scripture tells us Jesus made in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And it begins with, and Jesus humbled himself. And became one of us. It is a posture of being a child of God that we exercise the discipline of self-humility. Now, there are many ways to reach for self, for uh, humility, but they're not ways that we find very comfortable, right? I mean, we can think through it. We can think we're pretty good until we meet somebody who really is, right? Man, I invented the toothbrush. Wow. And then the next guy stands up and says, well, I invented a whole set of new teeth. Yeah. And then the lady stands up and says, well, I've got them all white. You know, and you keep on going until, you know, you just keep going. There's always somebody, it seems like, when you accomplish something, who's done something more, right? And once you start thinking about that, once you think you're pretty wise or pretty smart, then you meet somebody who is so much wiser, so much more experienced, so much uh, more educated than you. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, I'm really not that educated at all. Age is a great uh, bringer of humility to our lives, isn't it? You know, 
I used to make jokes. I've almost quit making them now about I didn't know how the world was going to make it when I died. I was worried about that. (laughs) Now that I'm getting closer to that reality, I'm kind of like, I don't think I'm going to make that joke anymore, but let's face it. When I'm gone, how long will it take the bishop to send you a next preacher? Boom. You know, there'll be one coming soon. And, you know, that's just the way it is. We think we're so important in this world until we put ourselves up against the worthiness of life itself. And so if we're too proud of ourselves, that can bring us back down. But we still need to remember and never forget that Jesus says you are loved and you're valuable enough for my son to die for you. He's not, Jesus is not coming to preach low self-esteem, but rather from a position of strength to choose to be humble for the benefit of others. That's what he's preaching. He's preaching and saying, if you humble yourselves, then God will exalt you. And after all, for you to think I'm wonderful is nice, but for God to think I'm wonderful should be everything to me. The difference is looking for that human and earthly pat on the back, that boost upward, versus the idea that we live in such a way that God honors us by lifting us up. That kind of humility is what we need in our world today. And it's hard for us to even know that we're not already humbled. Most of us think we are really having it tough. We do. We think we have a tough life. You know, there are always groups of people who have felt entitled and privileged in certain ways. And then the ones who are actually entitled and privileged often do not even understand that they are the privileged ones. I guess if I'm talking about my own personal fear for our culture and for our nation, it is that. We talk about poor us when we know that in relation to 90% or 95% of the rest of the world, there's no comparison between the most common of us and 98% of the rest of those people in those other nations. And we're so entitled and we're so blessed, it's so hard for us to realize that we are. And when we see things that cause us to grapple with one another in the land of the most plenty, it's very humiliating to us to realize when we step back and take a harder look that we are quibbling over bounty, over blessedness, over being the most benefited people that the world has ever known. And it's not just one of us that struggles with that. It's all of us. It's hard to admit that we're part of a privileged group of people. I'm going to use an easy one. Isn't it good to be a male, guys? I mean, let's face it. Let's just tell the truth. It's good to be male, right? Because after all, males make more money, right? They tell the lie that they're the head of the household, right? We all know who runs your household, right, guys? That's right. I mean, we, we make jokes about it, but we're clear about what's really going on at home, right? But you know there are many women who have to struggle and fight for what comes easily as an entitlement if a person is a male. That is so wrong, isn't it? It's so wrong for us to do that, to pay people doing the same job different amounts of money because of their sexuality, whether they're male or female. It's just that gender should have nothing to do with that. And here we are in 2016, and we know that, and yet it's still going on in our own nation where it happens day in and day out. 
We need to struggle to realize that we don't need to lift ourselves up because of who we are as an entitlement, but rather we need to have a different kind of posture. And I think that's the message behind this text, that there's a different kind of way for us to live. And I'm going to use it in terms of blessing. What kind of person are you really oriented to be? A person who's looking for a blessing from God or a person who is looking to be a blessing for others? That separates the humble heart from the proud heart. That separates, answer that question, separates the generous from the not so generous. The generous person is the one who's willing to give away what they have, expecting nothing in return. You, can't, you invite the people from the street to come into the dinner knowing they can never repay you. They just finished another walk in the prison, and Laura came up and showed me the card. There's nothing that those prisoners can do other than thank the people who are there during one of these prison walks except to sign a card and write a note to them, which they did sending it back, expressing what it meant to them to be loved and fed and cared about for those 72 hours. You know, that is Christian ministry. There's not any way that they're going to be able to help the people who gave up their time, their energy, and their money, even their family time, in order to be there and to serve them. And that spirit and its lack thereof is where I think the church struggles today. We get so busy in our world of so many things to do, and they're all good, that we have to stop, and several commentators ask, each church should examine their ministry and ask themselves this simple question. Are most of our activities that we're engaged in outwardly directed, or most of them self-serving for our congregations? Now, I don't have to tell you where that meter's going to fall on 98% of the churches, do I? Do I have to tell you that? That's not rhetorical. That's a pretty weak no. And that's an honest response, I think. Because we don't like to think about what our church would look like if 60% of our resources went toward those who don't know what church is or what's going on in church, in foreign missions and local missions and reaching out to others. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to look at that budget and realize how much money we spend on ourselves versus how much we spend on others. How much did John Wesley leave behind when he died? Although he accumulated some monies as he worked through his many long years because he was so frugal with what he had. He left very little behind because he gave it all away intentionally. How much do we give away of ourselves Versus what we use for ourselves. You say, when I preacher, you know we have to have ministry for our youth, ministries for our children. We have to have ministries to take care of our members who are having troubles. We have to have teaching our adults. We have a lot of things to spend money on. Where would we get all that money? I don't know. I've been doing this 38 years. I don't have any answers. I've just got questions. I've got questions for every church in a culture like ours. Since they think we don't care. What can we do to prove that we do? What shifts can we make suddenly, uh, subtly, if I can get it out, and intentionally that will say to the world, the church is just not about us being a club for ourselves, 
but it's about us reaching out to others. At a wedding we, the, we attended last night where I had the, was a, the officiant, was, we were sitting at a table with strangers who began to tell me about his conversion experience. You know, he never mentioned church once, but he did mention how he was saved from his sin and how he had been called by God to reach out, not as a professional pastor, but to reach out and to, as he said, drag people to Jesus who didn't know how much Jesus loved them. And he was excited about that mission, and he didn't need to say church at all. He just said what Jesus had called him to do. Other-oriented, someone who had realized that he was lost and needed to be saved. Now, Breck had no idea he was lost today. In fact, he was pretty sure he wasn't. Because after all, he, he, he had all of our perfect attention, right? He knew if he ran, somebody chased him. That's wonderful. That's a game, right? That's good. He knew if he waved, y'all all smile and wave back. And he didn't know what else to do. He wasn't worried about all the particularities of church. But he knew that he was supposed to be kneeling there, and he was going to get water on his head. And he was ready for that. Get to the point. Let's do it. The words weren't for him anyway, right? He didn't know anything about the words. The words are for us, however, to remind us that we're going to take that squiggling, squirrely little lump of flesh, and we're going to help his parents discipline him and train him and watch over him until he's full grown. What a privilege that is for us to be given that opportunity to do that. And that's what life is about, except we just need to figure out ways. And as I said, I don't have all the answers, but churches in this century have got to struggle with what it means and how they can become more servant-minded, more humble, in order that they might concentrate on blessing others as opposed to asking God to bless them. And that's a hard thing for us to do. But if we humbly go to God and seek his direction, I believe God will allow us and help us to play a more effective game of shoots and ladders for Christ. Shoots and ladders. You know the game, right? You spin the wheel, you land on the right spot, and you climb the ladder to success. Or you spin the wheel and you hit on the wrong spot and you fall down the chute to the bottom. My question is this, my friends. It's simple. Where do you think you're going to most find Jesus? Where you're shooting up the ladder for success or where you're sliding down into the pits where those who are losing are living? I submit to you the game needs to be reversed. And so does our lives. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for a humble spirit, even though we not it know it's not easy to obtain. We look, Lord, to live a life in light of the humility that we claim and that we have in you. We know that's difficult. We know, Lord, we all want to succeed and be pushed forward, and yet at the same time, we know this message of reversal throughout the Gospel of Luke is very pertinent to our world. Help us, Lord, struggle with ways in which we can become more outwardly directed. Help us, Lord, to find ways in which we, the most enjoyable words we hear come from you, not through numbers or our success on this earth, but rather the still small voice that resonates within us when we know we have acted as you would have acted when you walked this earth. Give us a servant's heart. 
Give us a heart of humility and give us a generous spirit, generous spirit so that we might use the life that you've given us primarily for blessing others. For that is what our Lord taught us, and we want to be like Jesus. We thank you for all the direction you give us, for your patience with us as we struggle along this journey, reaching to be your children in this world.